Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners, and welcome to episode number seven of season seven in the Thought Hermes podcast. Seven, seven, isn't that the episode to do again? A Masonic episode, <laughs> right? It is, and it is called Occult Masonry question mark and my guest here today will be Jamie Paul Lamb more about him just a little bit later today is Sunday October 10 and this is episode number 99 of this podcast so next week it will be the 100th episode and who will be your guest next week you will learn it at the end of the show as always, my name is Rudolf, I am your host, and it's a pleasure to have you back here to listen to this episode. I tell you, it will be a very nice and very interesting episode. And to those of you who are new to the show, welcome to you as well. Great to have you, great that you discovered this podcast. And you should go on the website, thoughthermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And look up all the previous episodes that we have there. 98, no, not true. 96 are still online. Over two of them I had to put away because they were outdated simply because they were talking about things that were far in the past and no longer actual. But otherwise, all the episodes are still there and you can listen to all of them. Many, many highly interesting guests the who's who of the esoteric arts, I may say. And yeah, I'm a little proud. You can hear it because we have done 99 shows now and uh, really four and a half years of work. And um, well, when I started this venture, well, more of that next week when it's number 100 then. Um, some people say I'm chatting too much here in this show to be at the beginning and this moderation in between. And sometimes I find a comment on YouTube or elsewhere. Well, the actual interview starts at 20 minutes or so. And yes, that's true. But sorry, I'm not going to change. I want to do this. I also want to let you know that I'm happy that you're here. I want to ask you for our for your feedback. Go on the website. Leave me a feedback there. Go on to Twitter or Facebook, leave me feedback there. I'm really happy to hear and read what you have to say here because on the website you can even leave a voicemail for me. So do that and I will be happy to get your messages. And well, if you don't like the music that we play on the show, if you don't like to hear me talk about uh, this or that, well, this is a podcast that has marks, um, chapter marks. So if you have the right equipment to listen to the podcast, most of the modern players use that feature. You can go with a click on the respective chapter that's marked music or interview part one or so and jump directly there. So sorry, you have to bear with me talking a little bit at the intro. Um, one more thing, no, two more things. One being, well, become a patron. 
Yes, please. I have some supporters here and I'm really very grateful for them because they permit me to continue to produce that show. And if you want that show to continue, it is always an investment. At some point, I will need a new computer here, etc., etc. So please become a patron. Go on the Patreon website, look for the Sauce Hermes podcast or go to our saucehermes.com website. You'll find the Patreon and a donation button there. From $1 per episode, you can be a member, you can be a patron, and you will be partners with us. That wouldn't, would be lovely, wouldn't it? Well, thank you. Let's play some music. I'll tell you more about that. Let's play some music now, right away, without telling you what it is, and I'll come back in one moment. again is the title of that piece and well maybe you've guessed it already the artist who performed it is jamie paul lamb yes our guest here today and of course it's not him alone um, it's him and his group which he was part of then at at the time and i thought it was really so great uh, so i I really needed to perform that. It was it was a great surprise when he sent that to me when I was asking him for some music. But it's a short piece and there's another one. I That's why I started so abruptly. There's another one. And right away now, the second piece in this punky mode of his. So because otherwise, afterwards, it will change and we can't play that again later. Singing the world is the other punk piece you're going to hear now. Again, 
Jamie Paul Lamb and um, he played a 60s Vox Jager organ if for those of you who know a bit the way it's good old garage punk and the band is called The Faded Pictures The Faded Pictures with Jamie Paul Lamb as the lead now singing the world
Singing the World by the band The Faded Pictures. And the lead singer was our guest today, Jamie Paul Lamp, uh, playing also a 60s Vogue Jaguar organ. Right, well, Jamie Polamb, you might remember, he was already on this show about three years back, and um, it was a very interesting talk, and he had just published his very first book at the time. We were talking about masonry, of course, already back then. We were talking about The Golden Dawn, which he's also a member of, which already makes him stand out of the big crowd of masons. And, um, well, he has in the meantime written two more books, uh, and um, it is quite amazing the success he has with that well it's not amazing when you read the books you understand absolutely why and um, the southern california research lodge um, they publish a list of the best masonic books every year and now they've done the best books of the century so far of course the first 20 years and uh, well masons can vote there um, about those books uh, which they think will be the most important and best books and well amazingly two of his books have appeared on the top seven of that list we'll hear more about that and that was for me the occasion he has also just released a new book called the archetypal temple so i really had to have him on the show right away have him back and it was a really really highly interesting talk we had and as always i will go and read now a few lines from that new book that he has just released only just arrived about two weeks on my desk two weeks ago on my desk and i read you a short um, excerpt at the beginning of the chapter the influence of astrology on the early speculative craft craft being of course masonry in the 21st century, you said the word astrology, and most Masons roll their eyes and imagine pseudo-scientific New Agers and blissed out, crystal-gazing hippies goofing around with quasi-astronomical data in order to tell fortunes. And that's largely accurate on the surface, I guess, at least in the popular sphere. But what if I told you that the timing for the formation of the United Grand Lodge of England was astrologically elected? or that some of the earliest speculative masons were indeed astrologers, and that there are several vestiges of astrological symbolism in the craft. I'm not trying to influence anyone's opinion on the efficacy of astrology, but regardless of your position, it's a fact that astrology fits squarely into the Aristotelian and Ptolemaic paradigm that dominated cosmology for the better part of 2000 years. That is to say, a holistic astrological perspective was accepted for far longer than our current reductionist cosmological worldview. And it wasn't until the end of the 17th century until its influence and standing in the sciences began to wane. Astrology certainly had ample time to make an indelible impact on the sciences. Over the centuries, many luminaries in astronomy had also been astrologers, intellectual giants the likes of Tycho Brahe, Johannes Kepler and Galileo Galilei readily come to mind. Early speculative Freemasons and founding fellow of the Royal Society Elias Ashmole was also an ardent astrologer, alchemist and, according to De Quincey, a zealous Rosicrucian. It is incontestable that the early speculative lodges of accepted masons in the 17th century were populated by a mix of Rosicrucians, alchemists and astrologers, 
among the royalty, intellectuals and natural philosophers of the day. There is, in fact, evidence of the early astrological influence in some of the Masonic material from this period and well into the 19th century, such as zodiacal glyphs on royal arch tracing boards, the symbolic depiction of the four fixed signs of the zodiac on the royal arch banner and myriad vestiges elsewhere cryptically deposited. However, there is one factor in particular to which I would like to draw your attention. The inception chart for the formation of the United Grand Lodge of England dated June 24, 1717. I am convinced, largely by the work of the astrologer Edward Cohut, that this date and time was elected as being astrologically auspicious vis-à-vis -vis the aims of the speculative craft, and I would like to illustrate just a few of the many points that have caused me to adopt this position. Well, if you want to know those points, you will have to read the book and get it. Okay, right, so I think that was a nice introduction. Enough words here now. Let's now go and meet Jamie Pullam himself. And as always, in the middle of the interview, I will come back. It will be in about 34 minutes from now. I'll come back with another piece of music. And I can already tell you all the music listening you playing for you today is going to be related to Jamie Pullam and uh, the show, what we are talking about here today, of course. Okay, great. Let's go. Let's go to Phoenix, Arizona and meet Jamie Paul Lamb. Here comes the interview. It is a great pleasure to have something back here on the podcast. He has been with us. It's been almost three years, I believe. Uh, Jamie Paul Lamb. And back then, three years ago, Jamie, welcome for, uh, here on the Thought Hermes podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Brother Rudolph. It's a, it's a pleasure and so great to be able to speak with you again. Of course, of course. I remember then, back then, when we spoke, you just had released maybe a couple of months earlier your, I don't know if it was your first book, but... Uh, yeah, it the was first, the first. It was the very first book then, okay. But that book, uh, which called Myth, Magic and Masonry, and we were talking about that, also about your wide openness to the occult world, not only to masonry, but the Golden Dawn. I remember we talked about that at the time. And well, since... Um, at least in the field of masonry, it's now your third book that just arrived, uh, and uh, in the in between, and this is going to be one of the major topics of our talk today is that book called "Approaching the Middle Chamber," which talks about the seven liberal arts in Freemasonry, and I think that's a very hot topic uh, also for a lot of non-masons and we we are going to talk a uh, part of our hour here together on that book but there's also your very new book the archetypal temple um where you have a collection of writings on masonic esotericism and 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 so we're gonna have to cover a lot of uh, a lot of ground but the not the reason but the the initiative was taken to have you now on the show because both your very first book, Myth, Magic and Masonry and Approaching to Middle Chamber, Chamber have been selected by the Southern California um, Research Lodge who do their fraternal review, which is, I believe you could say the US 
biggest Masonic regular publication, a monthly publication. Would you agree? Yeah, it's certainly, you know, a lot of people outside of California certainly subscribe to that and it's become a, a pretty visible organ. Through, through Absolutely. Which, yeah. And they do a, they do normally an annual collection of the most important Masonic books. So what their what their readers think. And this time they have done the most important Masonic books of the century. And um, well, both Jamie's books are in the top seven, number two and number seven, I believe they are. And that's quite amazing. Congratulations to that, Jamie. How did that happen? <laughs> You know, I, I think, um, you know, as we were kind of alluding to uh, before recording, there's been sort of a change in the uh, general kind of even the membership of the craft. Things are gradual. People are gradually becoming more open to the, uh, I guess, an esoteric perspective in masonry. So uh, it, that might be part of the reason. Uh, I know that it's, you know, the first book came out in 2018. Uh, the second one was 2020. So, um, you know, to have both of those place in, in the, you know, biggest Masonic books of, or whatever it was, I forget the mm -hmm. title, most important Masonic books of the new millennium is, uh, you know, uh, kind of surprising to even, you know, to me, um, I'm not sure why they're resonating so much, but I'm, I'm happy that they are. I put a lot of effort into them and, you know, it's really an honor. You outrun even Albert Pike's Morals and, Morals and Dogma with one of her two books. <laughs> Quite <Yeah>. incredible. <laughs> um, but you, we, you just said that we were talking about it before we started to record. Um, yes, um, things have changed over the last three to four years. Once again, already at the time they had that movement had already, of course, started. But um, do you think in that respect, masonry is just a reflection of general society? or is is that movement towards occult perspectives as you call it in your first book in masonry is that something that's particular in that field of masonry i would think it it comes down a little bit to um an individual's sense of meaning making or finding meaning and as you know i can only speak to uh society in the United States as we move more and more towards just secularism and uh, a separation from religious and theological experience. I think that that is left sort of a vacuum um, by which people are in investigating things like, you know, Eastern philosophy and religion uh, and certainly Western esotericism, the burgeoning sort of neo-pagan movement. There's just been a lot going on. And yes, you could you can sort of trace that back to maybe the 60s, um, but uh, it's certainly picking up steam and, and we're starting to feel that influx in the membership of Freemasonry in the United States. So it seems like the, the younger candidates or initiates that are coming in seem to be looking for not so much the philanthropic um, and fraternal or social aspects of the craft. They're looking for deeper meaning. They're looking for um, 
certainly character development, which is right on the surface of what we offer. The, the fraternity of Freemasonry plainly offers, you know, um, the the symbolic application of the working tools, let's say the working tools of a craft Mason to build the character of an individual. So that's certainly something that's at the forefront, but then there is a sort of, I guess, maybe a meta Masonry or an esoteric Freemasonry behind that, that, uh, that many people were finding are just seem to be more and more attracted to these deeper doctrines and, and, uh, the, the, what Manly P. Hall called the priceless heritage that Freemasonry has inherited, you know. Definitely. In regards to P how people approach you compared to when you freshly had become a Freemason or were even knocking at the door or and now, and I'm not speaking because they know you now and you have written those books. I mean, just in general, as a brother, when you when you go to to attend lodge meetings and stuff like that, do you uh, did you have a feeling to be more the strange guy at the beginning and now you are more part of it? Or is it is that not has that not been the experience you made? That community has certainly grown. So particularly as we see the rise of of Masonicons, Esotericons, uh, I just did one yesterday for the um, Freema uh, Esotericism in Freemasonry conference out of uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And there seems to be more and more of these sort of conferences and certainly um publications like fraternal review esoteric mason magazine out of out of uh, littleton colorado um several different publications that are now sort of reorienting their subject matter to include uh these more esoteric and even occult subjects at times so i i think because of the the general trajectory toward that um, I'm not finding myself to be uh, the weird guy as much as I did 10 years ago when I came in. And that crossover that we were speaking about uh, last time when we spoke between your membership at the Golden Dawn and at the same time of being a Mason. Um, I don't know about the United States, at least over here in Europe, where the Golden Dawn is much less um, uh, present than in the US, but um, w would be not only rare and maybe strange to some, but would in some obediences even not be well seen and even cause trouble to the Mason. Um, uh, what about that? Is that something that has become more normality or is that are you still a singularity in that respect? Well, we do have, and I'm not sure if this is since the last time I talked to you, but we did receive, no, I think this was the case last time we spoke was uh, about three, maybe four years ago at this point, we received a warrant um, to essentially charter a Golden Dawn temple here in Phoenix. So um, I was charged with uh, filling the Imperator and the Hierophant role where I still sit. I'm still installed there in our temple here, which has grown quite a bit. So um, it is not. So our temple has been meeting at a Masonic Lodge. And here's 
maybe this sort of answers your question is that when we meet there, we tell the building manager of the Masonic Lodge that we are a hermetic study group. Mm-hmm. We, we don't use the we don't say Golden Dawn, um, A, because it's it's part of the sort of obligation. Technically, even though everybody knows what that is now, you weren't supposed to be yes. even say those words yes, words, at, yeah. at one point. But um, and and then just like in my blue lodge, where I'm also sitting as the worshipful master for the next two years at my a blue blue lodge that we chartered a few years ago here in Phoenix. So I'm kind of doing double duty right now. And uh, there's a lot on my plate regarding operating both of those I'm sure, yeah. simultaneously. So um, and then trying to do the book things and talking. But uh, but yes, I kind of keep them separate, um, although every single male member of our Golden Dawn Temple here is a Freemason. Oh, really? Yeah, that's not by design. That's more by proximity, probably. Right, uh, right, uh, right. It used in the very beginnings of the Golden Dawn in Britain, it used to be by design. But of course, those those times have long passed. Yeah. 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 How very interesting. That, 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 that's how I wasn't aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you were saying that, yes, the spirituality in day-to-day life or religiosity, you might also call it, has gone lost and, and uh, the, it's become a more secularized world. But don't you think that also that social gap that is opening more and more in the US and everywhere in the world, basically, but in the US, it's quite sensible at the moment, at least from what we see from over here. Do you think that this social gap has also contributed to the fact that people are more in search of um, spiritual foundation, let's call it that way? Could that also be part of the reason or is that not really a motivation for for Masons? I would say certainly there are social pressures. There are, you know, and all manner of pressures bearing down upon us, particularly over the last couple of years. There's just a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of external pressure and a lot of um, anxiety and things like that creeping in. So it is, uh, it is, you know, I think it's, it's helpful for people to, well, the impetus is on an individual to find meaning and to find purpose and to find a place where they could belong and where they could sort of grow and where they could find meaning. So I, I think that as things get more difficult externally, it's just a harder world to live in right now. There's just, uh, you know, emotions are high as you kind of alluded to over here. So it's, uh, it's, there's been such a polarization that, you know, and then when you add COVID and the whole pandemic into the mix, that's just gas on the flame. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do believe that that has something to do with the greater, not necessarily people coming to Freemasonry or the Golden Dawn or occult traditions in general, but just an overall kind of how do I make sense in a world that is apparently falling apart right before my eyes, you know, dismantling. And uh, it's scary. You know, I think a lot of people are, are, you know, kind of unsure about the future in a general way. I'm not a social scientist, so I can't 
talk about the minutia of that argument, sure. but, but uh, it's palpable that there is certainly a change in the general social tenor of um, American life uh, over the last uh, certainly five years. So. But when you're suffering that experience and of course, then you go to look, as you say, for a sense and you find it in esoteric and or occult practices. Um, masonry is also there to create people who are active in in changing that uh, bad perspective, so to speak. Right. Um, is that esoteric and occult uh, movement also trying to be active in that or is it only going support giving support uh, moral support to say it a bit bluntly to those who who are the actors uh, in the field so i would this i'll have to bring down to my personal perspective which is sure. that um The way I'm sort of navigating the world, and I don't feel like I'm in any particular hardship right now. Financially, we're about the same that we've been for a while. Maybe we've even grown a bit. Um, my wife and I here, our quality of life is approximately the same. Um, there are those less and those more fortunate than I am. But from yeah. my from my perspective, um, my sort of way of navigating uh, these times from these external pressures, et cetera, is more hermetic. And what I mean by that is I have a sphere of influence. Um, and I recognize that myself as a microcosm will resonate. If I live by my principles, if I, you know, live by the tenets of Freemasonry, let's say, for example, um, then I, then I could expect to resonate with a healthier macrocosm because on the individual level, I believe that, um, you know, per hermeticism and even per Neoplatonism, there's this certain and, and stoicism with its cosmic sympathy and these things that we talk about, this resonance between the mm -hmm. microcosm and the macrocosm, which underlies all of uh, astrology, alchemy and theurgy or magic. So, To have that perspective and to develop myself and to not participate in six systems, uh, you know, like my vegetarianism, for example, which has been years and years now. So I saw that as being something that, you know, I did not want to be complicit in. So as things come up, um, I try and fine tune my particular microcosmic perspective because I know that I can't. I know that it would be in some ways even counterproductive to me to go out for me to go out into the street and try and proselytize to people or, yeah. or try and, you know, beat a drum out there to change somebody else. Um, I have, I have agency over what I'm over my actions in the world, you know? And for me, that's, that's been helpful uh, just because it, because otherwise there's a feeling of powerless. We can't go out and necessarily, you know, wrestle somebody to, you know, you have to believe like I believe, or, or you know, why are you doing this? It's obviously bad either for no, the planet sure, or for sure. Sure. No, but that's more what I meant. And I, I meant it also from a hermetic perspective, so to speak, uh, because I believe you can only change things in your in your uh, 
in sphere of influence and it doesn't make any sense as you say to be pro proselytic and go out into the world and 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 claim you you got the truth I, i'm absolutely right. with you um but what i meant is is well, let me give you an example. Uh, when I was Worshipful Master, I am not a member of the Golden Dawn, but I probably would be if we had a working Golden Dawn organization here in Austria. So ceremonial magic is my day-to-day -day experience. I am working also in a hermetic uh, um, thought. Um, and when I was Worshipful Master, I without, I believe, my brethren in the lodge really realizing, but the way I conducted the ritual uh, was probably very heavily influenced by that experience because I put another sense into it. You know, lighting the candles in lodge is probably uh, an invocation to me uh, and not to every worshipful master who has not that same experience. And that's what I mean. Um, does that occult magical let's call it magical as well let's not be afraid of that word in that context right yeah. um well in, in masonry sometimes you are uh, one is a bit afraid of that word probably but um at least over here um but is that experience influencing the way you at least conduct ritual or maybe even act as a worshipful master Certainly. So there's the infusion of intention and imagination. So mm -hmm. let's say here's something we've been talking about lately uh, in and around my Blue Lodge and in the Masonic context is this idea of the egregore. We mm -hmm. plainly talk about the egregore, how we are, you know, even the most um, kind of um, uh, the most kind of. Uh, non-esoteric or the most uh, exoteric Freemason in our Blue Lodge is familiar with the term egregore mm -hmm. because we know that we are creating a collective kind of thought form. We know that we are creating a collective um, sort of projection and that ties into the archetypal temple If you, because here's you know how you know how in Freemasonry for for your listenership, we'll, we can break this down a bit. Yes, in Freemasonry, you have to do, uh, memorize your catechism. You have to memorize your obligation. You have to memorize huge chunks of ritual and lectures at various times, and in order to prove proficiency to go from degree to degree, and certainly to become a worshipful master, you have to know tracts of of open, close, and obligate, and and all of these various lectures and things in order to in order to enter that position. So in doing so, in these lectures, we are constantly oriented in places in the lodge, almost like a, a memory temple, a mnemonic temple. So uh, like, for instance, I went to the West where I met the senior warden who reconducted, reconducted me to the East where I met the worshipful master. I was placed in the Northeast corner on the first step of a Mason. I went to the South, the North, etc., And we're constantly orienting ourselves in this mnemonic temple. And when we have to remember these lectures, we anchor ourselves directionally, thereby creating almost a la Bruno, um, a sort of memory palace, a memory temple, a mnemonic lodge room. And when, when every Mason does that, or every Mason to whatever degree erects this mnemonic temple, you could say that we are all contributing to the egregorical temple, which exists on a higher, more rarefied plane than that, that personally mnemonic temple. So if all of these Masons 
erect their mnemonic temple because we are temple builders on various hermetic planes, right? From the physical to the celestial. If we all erect that mnemonic temple, it's almost like I've, I've described it as being sort of holographic in that there are various points of consciousness that are all contributing their beam of light, so to speak, in order to make this holographic image, which is, you know, kind of a, an analogy for that egregorical temple, you know, so... And then in terms like you brought up about invocations and things, we plainly have in Preston Webb ritual here in the United States, I guess York ritual or American, right? Um, we have, uh, there's a little clause in there where it says, um, you invoke the blessings of deity before every great and important undertaking. The invocation of the so blessings. The word is being used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it's pretty explicit. Mm -hmm. So when there are things like the new sort of, this is something I've, I'm very grateful for in uh, Freemasonry in the United States over the past maybe five years is that more and more people are taking up what we call the MRF model, the Masonic restoration foundation. That's Andrew hammer and, and several others who kind of, he wrote the book observing the craft, which was number one on that list. That Absolutely. You referenced. Yes. Definitely. As it should be, because that book as no other book has before it has, that was required reading for my blue lodge. When we were chartering this lodge, we had to read that book and we had several members go to MRF symposia. Mm -hmm. So, um, there's a there's a new solemnity, a new gravity to our work that we're starting to infuse it with. Like when you were sitting in the East, lighting the candles was a solemn sort of spiritual, deliberate affair that that had some that had some will behind it, that had some uh, imagination and intention. Behind. Yes, and exactly. intention. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Okay. Well, you, May I just, hey, I have to say, you mentioned the archetypal temple, and that's not only an article and that what you explained, it's also the title of that very new book. So just to remind our our listeners about that, because it's a, it's a highly interesting book, not only for Masons, I believe it's really something that, that could be inspiring for many other people as well. And you mentioned memorizing and the mnemonic, which is a very strong part of Anglo-Saxon uh, Freemasonry, less on the European continental side. And um, that's why if you can, if you want to just maybe give me two or three minutes a little bit more in-depth um, esoteric meaning to to that mnemonic temple, as you called it. Um, wh what beyond the the purely um, brain training that it, it seems for some people. Uh, what is it on the esoteric occult side that this memorizing effect has on the Mason and on the egregore? Yeah, I think the most important part is that um, in creating that. So let me back up a bit before I answer that. If we could say as sort of a postulate that the central project of Freemasonry is temple building. So uh, that's classically 
one of the, you know, the central project of, of sure. what we do. So if, if that is the central project of Freemasonry, then that would, then it would follow that Freemasons are then temple builders. And if they are speculative, that doesn't mean that they're out um, quarrying, raising, dressing, and fitting workstone for an edifice per se. Um, but it does mean that we symbolically work in that arena that that the erection of the temple on those various planes is um is important to our craft it is central to our work it is perhaps the centerpiece of our work the, the erection of it so that comes at again at various hermetic planes from density to rarity rarity to density um and i kind of i tend to believe that if we were to line up to put those uh, manifestations of the temple in alignment, then that would give us a sort of theurgical ladder, almost mm -hmm. like a Jacob's ladder upon which we could ascend and descend. And let me unpack that a little more. We certainly have the idea of a historical temple, which we get from Egyptian temples and King Solomon's temple, um, Mesopotamian ziggurats and, and all the temples of the East and the, and South and Central America, et cetera, et cetera. There mm. is, there is this idea of a historical temple that we've, that we've all absorbed, right? Um, just in our collective unconscious, there is that again, archetypal temple of historically. Yes. So, so there is also the, the sort of classical temple. When we think about Greco-Roman architecture or Vitruvius, for example, we think about the module, like the base of a column, let's say a Doric column, the base of the column, the diameter of it was what was known as the module. So that was used as the fractal unit by which the rest of the temple uh, was was erected in proportion. So, so it's almost like a fractal image, like a Mandelbrot type fractal. And, and also in the idea of classical temples was this theurgical idea that you're drawing down a God form, mm -hmm. that there is insold statuary, animated statuary, um, depending on which deity in the pantheon that the temple was erected in, um, in service of, or, you know, to yeah. inhabit, to embody. So going from there, of course, we have the physical temple wherein Masons meet downtown. So for your non-Masonic, um, uh, listeners, the temple is the building in which lodges meet. So there are Masonic lodges, which are groups of men. And then there is the Masonic temple, which is the building in which they mm -hmm. meet. So there is a physical brick and mortar temple downtown in you know, many cities and towns across the United States. And these are the physical temples. So the, you know, just the grossest physical manifestation of the temple beyond that, then we could talk about things like the memory work. The mnemonic work would be the next order of rarity, let's say, where um, every Mason who does his catechism and does learns the lectures and learns the floor work within the ritual, like the certain mm. movements and circumambulations that we all make. It's uh, a kind of ceremonial magic somehow, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we absorb this on, on a mnemonic, almost kind of like the occult idea of an astral temple, let's say. 
and, and when these come together and they are un- when when the various projections from groups of masons come together uh, beyond this mnemonic or I guess sort of astral temple, then we can create together an egregorical temple, a, a group thought form, a, a group sort of projection. And then beyond that, we, of course, th- have things like the celestial temple and then ultimately um, the house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens that we sometimes talk about. That's that's a quote from our ritual mm-hmm. that we are fitted as living. The individual Mason is fitted as a living stone for that house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So so there's that expanse, that alignment of from from density to rarity, from materiality to ethereality, I guess, um, this sort of expanse of this temple archetype on, on various hermetic planes. And I think the the occult and sort of or esoteric aspects of that are are pretty plain. And the implication is that at that point, once these are aligned, then we have access to. A, a theurgical ascent, whether it is intellectual, whether it is moral and ethical, um, whether it is planetary, as in the Neoplatonic rise through the seven planetary spheres from the gate of Cancer to the gate of Capricorn in Plato's Myth of Ur or in Porphyry's um, commentary on the Cave of the Nymphs, for example. And the idea is, particularly in that planetary ascent, which has a you know, an occult history and that goes back a theurgical history that goes back to Plato himself and the myth of her, but certainly passing through and being more developed in the Neoplatonic sense. And maybe even further back than Plato. Maybe even for, yes, exactly. So, so to st- into Mesopotamia with the yep. myth of yeah. Inanna. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. So, so I think that, um, I think that we have access to that and we actually talk about that when, I don't know if you guys have this in Europe, but, um, the common gavel by which we divest the stone of its superfluous pieces, mm-hmm. we break mm-hmm. off these pieces. Yes. So that sort of reminds me of how when we ascend through the planetary spheres, we give up a vice and we take on a virtue. You know, that's classically how those, you know, from from the moon to Mercury to Venus to the sun to uh, Mars to Jupiter to Saturn. Saturn yeah. We would we would give up an associated vice with that with each planetary sphere and we would take on a virtue and then. Uh, at the passing into the um, the sphere of the fixed stars and the zodiac, or the Ogdoad, that Ogdoadic sphere, um, we would be the astrologers such as Porphyry, who was deeply yeah. into Hellenistic astrology, uh, would call that the liberation from fate. So, so we would be outside of these causal spheres, these the sphere of causality and be again, sort of liberated from that, that wheel of necessity or that spindle of necessity as Plato called it. But the other, um, idea about that is, um, sort of being liberated from fate. Um, 
you would um, you, you then had access to these the Empyrean realm, right? The the sort of prima mobile outside of this. So when in Hermeticism they talk about the, or in the Nag Hammadi cache they talked about the the discourse on the eighth and ninth, the Ogdoad and the Ennead the Enneatic sphere. So I think there's a well-developed um, sort of uh, trajectory for us in, in that tradition that we can readily apply to our work uh, in Freemasonry. And, yeah. and I tried to kind of open that door with this archetypal temple concept because that way we're not using sort of um, alien language or imported language to exactly. talk about no, th thank you. I think it's very clear. I, I, I would, I mean, of course, I know the terminology just as you do, but um, I believe it has been really clear also to people who maybe are interested in, in the occult, but not Masons. Definitely. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Okay. It's now time to stop talking for a bit and to hear some music and well i am going to play for you a piece of music we will talk about the why in the second part of the interview but it was a very special wish of uh, jamie's then after that recording of the interview they said could you play that music and i will i will certainly do that for him well, for him, for us, of course, as well. Right. And it will be developed underground and, but particularly this, uh, it's singer Nico. And he was really looking forward to that Roses in the Snow performed by the Velvet Underground and its front woman who was known for her sultry voice and ice goddess presence. Okay. So. Do enjoy uh, Nico and Velvet Underground now. And after that, we'll be back right away with the interview. Yes, uh, there will be music also at the end of the interview, but I will explain to you only after that what it was, because, well, you'll see, have a reason for that. So now let's go for Nico and Roses in the Snow. Enjoy. Your soul 
I also believe what you just said about ascending uh, from through the planetary spheres um, is very much part of that book that uh, brought us back together initially, um, which is approaching the middle chamber, um, uh, because the seven liberal arts, which you use in that book as a baseline, so to speak, to for that ascension uh, as well. Um, they, of course, have also gotten that link to their planetary spheres, each of them. And well, maybe first of all, we, we should explain the, the, the term middle chamber briefly, because it might not be it might not be well known to everybody listening in here. So the, the middle chamber is the it's the place in this symbolic King Solomon's temple, uh, per the ritualism and, and, and symbolism of Freemasonry, there is a place in King Solomon's temple where the ancient brethren, the ancient craft assembled to receive their wages and have their names recorded is, is how it's described. Exactly. Um, the way you were, the way you accessed the middle chamber was by um, ascending a flight of winding stairs consisting of three, five, and seven steps. So those those steps were associated with um, certain symbolic concepts that that you're meant to digest per the lecture of the fellowcraft degree or the second degree of Freemasonry. So in this lecture, which um, it's about 25 minutes long, 
to deliver. We, we do a pretty long lecture. Um, same thing back in Connecticut where I was raised. Mm-hmm. Ritual changes from jurisdiction to ju- sure. jurisdiction, but uh, it's approximately the same length. So one of our longer lectures and you ascend the three steps which correspond to uh, youth, manhood, and old age. They correspond to the uh, wisdom, strength, and beauty. They correspond to the junior warden, the senior warden, and the worshipful master. Uh, and then once you ascend those and you hear the sort of lecture accompanying that course of three steps, then you move on to the course of five steps, which prepares us by um, sort of bringing up the orders of architecture, uh, the five human senses, and how these relate to our ritual. So we get this empirical sort of physical orientation through those three and five. five. The five elements, so the four elements plus plus the spirit, ether, yes, exactly. It, Exactly. So, so we get this elemental sublunary kind of uh, education there, and I say sublunary because you we know we're talking about sure. below the sphere of the moon. So, and then we have, um, and then we have the trivium and the quadrivium. So, the trivium is uh, grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And, and this has to do with, um, you know, a grammar, I make this point in the book, it doesn't necessarily have to do with uh, syntax and, you know, the language arts or the written word. It You can have a grammar of magic, which is a grimoire. You yes, know, the, yes. The word, there's the word. Exactly. The, they're yeah. etymologically cognate, right? Absolutely. And uh, so, so you have grammar, rhetoric and logic, which gets us thinking critically so we could absorb um, the quadrivium, which is the four ways. And, and, this- and sorry, just to interrupt you one moment, I think those three grammar, rhetoric, logic are also building one on each other. So you don't attain logic without mastering grammar and rhetoric first, right? Absolutely. Yes. So, so they're certainly contingent on their predecessor yeah. and, and they're definitely in that order for a reason. Mm -hmm. And once we get through the trivium and sufficiently set ourselves up to think critically and to use oration and these rhetorical devices and, and to communicate effectively, uh, then we are allowed to pass to uh, the quadrivium, which is of course, very ordered and, you know, has a lot to do with the tetractus. I think we should get into that as well. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So you have a, the quadrivium consists of arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And they are in that order for a reason. So by arithmetic, we're talking about pure number. We're talking about abstract number. Uh, By geometry, we're talking about number in space how number relates to spatial orientation, whether it's, uh, you know, Cartesian space or Minkowski space, whatever it is, the geometry and trigonometry, spherical geometry and everything that that sort of entails. And then we move on to music, which is number in time. So music moving forward in time in a, in a linear sense. Um, and you come into contact with concepts such as, uh, I forget whether it was von Schelling or Goethe or um, Novalis. One of them said, uh, architecture is frozen music. Mm-hmm. Have you ever I heard think that? It, I think it was Goethe. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. not sure, but I think it was him. Yeah. Mm. So, um, 
So we get into number in time when we deal with music. And then finally, the capstone of the quadrivium is astronomy, which is number in space time. So finally, the full fruition going from number, number in space, number in time to number in space time, the full fruition of this. Uh, and quickly to bring in the type. The tetractus, the Pythagorean diagram of the tetractus, which can, which is an equilateral triangle made up of ten points, mm-hmm. and there's one course of one, a course of two beneath it, a course of three beneath that, and at the base, the ground floor, of course, is uh, four points. So if you could visualize that, I know you know it. I'm just saying this for your no, no, Thank you. You know it's necessary. Thank you. Absolutely. So um, if we consider that point at the top, and here's where some GD stuff kind of bleeds in. If we consider the point at the top, that is a point as considered in mathematics, having position but no magnitude, having location but no dimension. It is a point, a monad. Yeah. Um, beneath that, we have two points, which is the simplest, you know, it's a line, one dimension, a yeah. one dimensional line. Below that, we have the course of three steps by which we we find the simplest superficies, the simplest two-dimensional planar um, model, a, a surface, the simplest surface. Mm-hmm. And then if we add one more point, so if you can imagine an equilateral triangle that is a planar two-dimensional surface, if you add one more point to the top of it and then connect those lines, you have a th- the first three-dimensional shape, which is a tetrahedron yeah. being the simplest platonic solid. Yeah. So when this sort of cosmogonical model is applied to our our quadrivium, it kind of makes sense as to how we find ourselves number in space time, where we finally have, because there is three dimensional space, there's a way to sort of move within that in an almost yet way, like the cube of the Sefer Yetzirah that we talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's, it's, it's also linked vaguely to the tree of life and, 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 and Kabbalah, of course, but I'm, I mean, seven liberal arts, as you point him out in that context here in that book, um, the seven liberal arts are also, also a subject like, uh, memorizing or mnemonic buildings, um, that part of, have, part of rhetoric. Exactly. But they have reappeared, um, over the last, I would almost say almost 10 years only, um, within, a masonry, but even within occultism in general, um, th- these are really traditions that come down from Renaissance and seem to have vanished until almost, I'd say lately, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's just me who rediscovered them, but suddenly you hear about the seven liberal arts more and more again, you hear about the mnemonic temple more and more again. Is that my impression or do you have the same impression? And and why is that? I certainly have the same impression and I saw a huge vacuum. I, mm. So l- let me tell you, uh, Rudolph, that when I, I didn't mean to write Approaching the Middle Chamber, that was those were my notes. I kept a Word document open. I kept a, a notebook, a spiral notebook open. Mm-hmm. I was making notes because I felt that though I was raised years earlier, I felt like that I was never truly passed to the degree of fellowcraft because it's the second degree of masonry and we received 
the entirety of our curriculum in the lecture of that degree. The lecture of the second degree of masonry contains the only intellectual curriculum that we have in the entire suite of three degrees. And it is completely underestimated. We have to say that in, within masonry, you always exactly. talk about apprentice and master and fellow craft passes by like that. And that's a big error just to underline what you're saying. Hen yeah. Hence, hence why we say past to the yeah. degree of uh, it, <laughs> exactly it's something that just goes by because as as you know and many freemasons will tell you that you look forward to the night that you're made an entered apprentice because you're finally a freemason it's a huge milestone and then you go through the fellow craft degree and it's nice and you get this nice lecture and then you move on you're past and then finally you get to get on the level with your brethren as a master mason i am now a master mason i have completed the three degrees of the Blue Lodge. So it's like this, it's like the middle child of our degrees. And, mm. yeah. But yet it contains um, the entirety of our syllabus, the entirety of our curriculum. So to answer your question, I saw this as a massive vacuum in our literature. And again, having never felt like I had gotten there myself, like I had sort of cheated myself out of this uh, education, which however antiquated it is, uh, Renaissance or medieval, or however, you know, these pieces come together in, you know, the classical education, etc. Um, I felt like it was, it was up to me, the impetus was on me to kind of um, do this for myself. Just Just like we were talking about that hermetic idea of how could we be the best microcosm that we could be. I felt like it would behoove me to really put my most into, um, as an individual, into getting a handle on that from my particular perspective. Mm -hmm. So I, I never meant to write the book. I was keeping notes in a Word document and a spiral notebook. And then I, I, that just snowballed. And then I had a document that had over a hundred thousand words in it. And I was like, you know, I should just clean this up because I don't know of another book in the corpus of Masonic literature yeah. that, that kind of really unpacks the gravity of the seven liberal arts. So, so I bent it into shape and I worked with my editor, uh, Jason Marshall, and we kind of I was able to kind of work it into a manuscript and, um, you know, so, and that has been pretty popular. That's the book that placed on as at number yeah. two. Uh, now to, f to finish the thought though, on the, uh, kind of why we do that, why that would be the case is classically from what I understand. And this leads to the middle chamber idea as well. Um, when we, ascend that course of seven steps through the seven liberal arts and sciences. Um, in a classical education, you would move then on to philosophy and then you would move on to theology. So yeah. these two sort of capped off and finished These were the finishing school of after your classical education, seven liberal arts and sciences, you would move on to first philosophy, then theology, and then you were done. So these prepared us sequentially to receive the gravity of Uh, philosophical thought, metaphysical thought, because we've already digested the physical. We've already spent so much time working it all the way up to celestial mathematics, astronomy. 
And now we're able to um, move on to the metaphysical. We're able to move on to these other more loftier abstract ideas. And then finally on to theology. So in that sense, it's a lot like you ever check out, uh, well, um, of course you've read Agrippa's three books sure. of occult philosophy. Yeah, Th Those are in order for a reason and they're the same order. Absolutely. Ele elemental magic or natural magic is the first book. Ma what he calls mathematical magic. Mathematical is, magic, yeah. Yeah. And then finally celestial or kind of angelic yeah, magic. Yeah, yeah. And you could even translate that onto the detractors as well. Then you have those two philosophy and theology, the two, when you go from the bottom up and then you end up with that single point, which is unity once again. Mm -hmm. And That's probably to come back to our initial discussion. Why is that all happening? This fragmentation of the 10 points that we live in our materialistic time, materialistic meaning uh, far away from the spirit, not not materialist, not in money sense. Right. Yeah. Um, which creates that need to to count fragmentation and to find that unity by working up your way through the detractors again. Certainly. Yeah. And I think there's. Um You know, for better or worse, the postmodern worldview has entered into that and has encroached into that. The the convenience of nonlinearity, you know, the the way that we can the attention span of your typical American, let's say, um, you know, that that really having the patience and the the sort of um, the uh, discipline to sort of take these in order, knowing that they are contingent on each other, knowing that they build towards something and that if you go out of order, or if you cherry pick or you dabble, um, it's a waste of time because they, they kind of have to build. It's, it's, it's like trying to build the roof of your house before you pour the foundation. Foundation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We have very nice picture. Indeed. Indeed. Fascinating. Well, thank you. There is one other subject, Jamie, we want to talk about. Actually, um, as I told you before we started to record, I have discovered that part of our discussion here today only basically 48 hours ago. I wasn't aware that you were uh, doing that. And on your website, you call it, I've never heard the term said that way, astromusicology. So, um, That's a combination, I believe, of astrology, of astrological chart work in regards to, to music, right? right? Am I saying that's right? Okay. Yes, exactly. um, But you, I, I was completely blown off when I read that little article on your, on your uh, website. I have never heard that before. And also, I, uh, I'm, of course, keen to know more about it on a personal level because it's I come from that professional background even. Um, right. And music has, since my early age, and I only discovered that much later when I had done years of hermetic work, that probably uh, my magical talent expressed itself in music at, early, at the earliest time. And only much later, I realized it was a special talent, right? Exactly. Um, so... Tell us about Astro Music College. Tell us about how you found out. What is it? What do you do? And yeah, well, talk about it. So, so uh, 
shortly after talking to you the last time, so let's say three years ago, uh, I started, uh, I was working through, you know, always kind of working on my, my magical practice and how to best support that and buttress that and get the theory and the practice working in conjunction. And, um, I found that I needed to get a better handle on astrology. I just, I didn't know the nuts and bolts. I couldn't have read a chart three years ago three years ago. I couldn't have interpreted a chart. I mean, maybe, you know, just intuitively kind yeah, of because sure. I, mm. because I know planetary archetypes from mythology and stuff like that. I could sound it out, mm. but, um, so I decided to invest myself. I became, you, you see what you just said. I could sound it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm a musician as well. So I know, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, we use terms like, you know, yeah. but, uh, anyway, so, um, so yeah, I dove deeply into astrology. I took a hermetic, I took Chris Brennan's hermetic astrology course. I joined the astrological federation of America, which is based. It's the oldest astrological federation in America. It's based out of Tempe, Arizona, about 20 minutes away from me. So they have an immense library. So I had all these great resources and I decided to dive headfirst into astrology because I knew that it would help um, my magical practice also in alchemy, like paracelsian alchemy, knowing mm -hmm. certain auspicious times at which to harvest plants, etc. So it's just, it underlies, I think, all of these hermetic arts in yes. such a... Sure such a sort of foundational or fundamental the baseline. Thing. Sure. Yeah. So after digesting a, a lot of that, um, and getting deeply interested in astrology, I, uh, somewhere in my studies, I came across Rudolf Steiner's, uh, attributions of the, the 12, no, 12 chromatic tones to the circle of the fifths. Okay. Uh, and I think it, I think I got that from Steiner. So the, what you probably see on my website is some, those are actually handwritten notes mm -hmm. that I, that I was kind of messing around with. I've changed certain things since then. And I used certain correspondences and other correspondences at different time, but there's, that's the basic idea is that the 12 notes of Western in Western musical theory, um, you know, the seven tones and their accidentals, the sharps and flats, the five sharps and flats. So the white keys and the black keys on a piano, um, those 12 tones wrap around the Zodiac in what's known as the circle of the fifths. So, and, and they have certain correspondences. It's sort of, I have to admit, Rudolph, it's kind of arbitrary which note you put somewhere only because, and I've looked this up, I've tried to get it to where I could associate a tone solidly with one of the signs of the Zodiac. And there are certain attributions I like and certain ones I don't, but I haven't found one that deeply satisfies me. And it's the same thing with the seven diatonic tones. So yes, we have church modes, right? We have sure. Ionic Dori, uh, we have uh, Ionian, Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian, Aeolian, Locrian. Right. We have we have seven. I, I never manage him quickly like that altogether. <laughs> so they're they're just modes of the major scale. Yeah. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, solfeggio. Yeah. They're the modes of that beginning on the second uh, degree to the second degree. Third degree to the third degree would be Phrygian, for example. Yeah. So 
So there are some classical attributions of the the seven diatonic tones to um, the church modes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of played around with those, and I cer- at certain times find things that I like about certain modalities and and their tonal attribution. So the last aspect I wanted to talk about or component is aspects. So the aspect doctrine in astrology. So if you know about astrology contains four basic parts and they are planets, signs, houses, and aspects. Those are the four primary elements of astrology. Planets that find themselves in signs, which are in houses, and how they are aspected against each other. That is to say, how they are arrayed on the 360 degrees of the ecliptic, and what sort of geometrical relationships they form in terms of a platonic solid, in, or sorry, a, a, a polygon, polygon yeah. mm-hmm. inscribed a polygon inscribed inside of that 360-degree yeah. circle. So if they're 60 degrees apart, um, they're a sextile. If they're 90 degrees apart, they're square. Okay. If, you know, et cetera. If they're 120, they're trine because they make a, an equilateral yeah. Yeah. triangle. Yeah. So by using that same rationale, we can we can find intervallic relationships. Uh, based on the circle. So if we array the 12 tones of, you know, Western music around the circle, we could see that there are certain intervallic relationships between the notes. So that's how we use aspect doctrine. So what I, what I did was I collected from various sources and some of it was just internally generated ideas and things that made sense to me. And I compiled um, a system that that you know just for whatever i said astromusicology whether that exists or not i have no idea i didn't really search it too much i'm not trying to trademark it you know yeah. because it's it's pulled from so many different sources yeah, i just yeah, thought yeah. i just thought it was very interesting so what happened was i was making money doing astrology charts on the side and that was going into my paypal and i was like what what am i you know this is just walking around money so i was like why don't i buy a harmonium so I bought a pump harmonium. Okay. And, um, you know, cause it has a nice drone and you could set which you could set which drone you mm-hmm. want. And, um, I felt like it'd be good, be a good idea to use the, this system of correspondences at astrological and, and sort of musicological and fuse them together and sort of pick, pick a drone that corresponds to maybe the ascendant on the chart and then modally kind of play around that and Mm -hmm. have, so due to the placements of the planets in the, in the chart, you can kind of get a tonal palette. You can assemble a tonal palette and you can assemble intervallic and harmonic relationships based on the aspect doctrine. So I was playing around with that uh, for quite a while. I haven't done one in a while, but one of the things I kind of talk about on my website on that one page is, um, you know, uh, you can play someone's natal chart. You know, I, I was going to say we use that on natal charts, right? Yeah, you could use it on event charts. You could use it for electional astrology. Um, 
to see what a future of event sounds like. Like say I say I'm I have an important job interview in two weeks. I could literally erect that chart and then play it on my harmonium. You know, kind of hear what it sounds like. Hang on, uh, I have to interrupt here. Hear what it sounds like, and that inspired me to ask uh, after the recording of the interview, Jamie, if he could not. Well, do such an play such a natal chart for us, so we have to, we can have an example of what it sounds like. And yeah, well, he recorded my personal natal chart as music. Quite a funny feeling and very exciting. You will find my natal chart on the website. You can have it, have a look at it, and you can hear what it sounds now.
Okay, got it. That was my Rudolf natal chart. My sun is in Leo. It's the E, the A, and the C are my moon in Aries. And then it is an A flat and a E flat for Jupiter and Saturn, both in domicile. Well, for the rest, have a look at the chart. But now we will return to the interview and continue our talk. It's also interesting that you selected a harmonium. Well, that goes now into into deeper music stuff. But harmoniums are, of course, very particular instruments with a lot of harmonics and which use a lot of their of the instrument's own frequency to sound. I mean, the wooden case and all of that is very important. Exactly. And it has been used a lot within Masonic uh, um, music uh, over the centuries because it it was in most of the at least the, the english lodges in back then the harmonium was in the corner and the music master would would accompany the the the, the, the meeting on the harmonium yeah i did not know that so my my introduction to the harmonium was not only indian classical music because they use it in indian classical music but mm -hmm. uh, my first introduction was nico and the velvet underground you know nico from the velvet underground yeah she, she did uh the marble index and desert shore were two records of hers uh in yeah. the late 60s early 70s which i just i'm a huge velvet underground fan and um Nico's records on the harmonium uh, just have always been favorites of mine. And then, of course, you know, the Indian classical output. But this is interesting to hear that they were used in Masonic lodges. I'll yeah, have to bring I think it's a very typically UK thing. And um, that's probably also the origin of the Indian, of the Indian classical sound uh, of the <laughs> harmonium. Yeah. Well, uh, how fascinating. And are you, are you developing that any further now? Or is that for you just a, a, a close thing that you continue doing? Or is, the, is that application of astrology within, within music? Is that something that you're going to push further a bit? I've developed it up to a certain point. And, and then I had to turn my attention to, you know, being worshipful master yeah. <laughs> and, and being a hierophant and imperator of the RGD temple here. Yeah. But so I, I've developed it up to a certain point where I think it's a workable system. Once I got it to workable system level, then I just kind of, you know, every really once works. in a while, every once in a while, I'll do a chart for somebody and, and do yeah. a five minute recording or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so if somebody wanted to chart from you, they could still approach you. Certainly. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, Jamie, we are coming slowly to the end of our talk. It's gone by so fast and we have had so many interesting topics. I'm sure we could have more about that. Um, but maybe just a little quick outlook of, uh, as you just said, you're a very busy man at the moment with those, both those uh, offices on your shoulders and all the other work that you're doing. But um, maybe you can still give us some outlook to uh, upcoming, maybe a book or upcoming other ideas and work in that field that you would like to check, tell us about. So, so after this, Uh, the uh, Archetypal Temple just came out. So now mm -hmm. my next project is uh, I'm trying to um, open up more to the to the broader demographic of the astrological world. As I told you, I've been deeply mm -hmm. into astrology the last few years. I found a particular chestnut that I don't think anybody has really developed yet. So I've I've pitched this idea to uh the mountain astrologer journal which is the 
the biggest yeah. it's the biggest astrology journal in the United States at least. Mm-hmm. And um, they're interested in this article that I've given them an abstract for. So, um, so it, it involves the, I'll just kind of tip my hand here sure. on the level. It involves the quineries. Mm-hmm. The five degree arc segments of the ecliptic. Right. right. Uh, to my knowledge, these have never been used in astrological delineation mm-hmm. as they pertain to the goetic demons and the angels of, of the Shemam Yeah. So if we take the significations of the angels and demons and use those to delineate planets which find themselves within those quinarian five degree cusps, we have a fuller, deeper sort of uh, microcosmic idea, a finer idea of that particular planetary placement. Very and interesting. I've developed a, a whole system around that that I've pitched to Mountain Astrologer. They're going to run it in the 2022 um, um, Mountain Astrologer yearbook edition. Uh, and, and then um, I've been approached uh, by a publisher to do a manuscript on that. Yeah, so. yeah. So that sounds interesting. Is Franz Barton's system also part of that idea, or I haven't? Does he use the quinaries? I'm not sure, but he uses at least those those 360 degree charts for demonic and goetic uh, um, conjurations. And so I, bel- I'm not a specialist of that, but um, but yeah, I, I could I could see it being part of it yeah so certainly they've the quinaries the quinaries have been talked about in their magical context because they were they were sort of divorced from astrology and were held in the sort of grimoireic world you know yeah that's probably more where he is yes Mm -hmm. yeah so they were cloistered over here and not being used for their their necessarily astrological potential they were being more used in their ceremonial magical sort of exactly context so i've I'm I'm trying to reconstruct that doctrine, a doctrine that never was, a doctrine yeah. that historically has never been back into its original astrological oh, context, but bringing some of those magical components to the astrological milieu as opposed to the other way around. I had on this podcast just two weeks ago, I had Nick Farrell talking about geomancy. And of course, that's also an aspect of you could say an aspect of astrology because he links it very much to that that has been completely separate from astrology at some point and only now is being put together again do you get the impression or in general that astrology is taking a new a new step in development uh, like other arts of the occult and hermetic world Certainly. So particularly since the 1980s with Project Hindsight, which Mm -hmm. was Robert Hand, uh, James, James Holden, I forget who else, a handful of people uh, who started to um, who started to translate fragments that were being found. And they took uh, like Franz Kumon, Franz Kumon from the. Mm the CCAG, they call it. So they had all critical editions that were still in Greek and Latin in their original languages. But now those have been being uh, 
translated by Benjamin Dykes and others. And now a lot of these older doctrines are being folded back into a new astrology that appreciates these Hellenistic and and even pre-Hellenistic like Egyptian and Mesopotamian ideas that are also being uh, sort of reabsorbed into the uh, workable astrology. So it's an exciting time for astrology lately. And it's, and, and anybody who's, who, did any stargazing over 2020 um, knows yeah. that it was, it can be painfully literal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So interesting. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for your time for this really exciting talk. It was good to have you back. Um, all the best to you, to your lot of work that you have with both your uh, occupations on the chair, yeah. <laughs> but also all the other stuff that you're doing. Thank you so much. And well, Keep safe and healthy, as we say those days, and and carry on. You too, brother, and I appreciate it so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, and also stay safe. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye.
Well, if you have listened carefully during the interview and listened to my natal chart being played there, you could easily discover that the last few, well, almost eight minutes that we were now listening to, to that piece of music was also based around that system of astro astro musicology playing natal charts and this was a piece called kach duka i hope i pronounced that properly it's astrology and uh, the birth of iskandar the birth of alexander of course alexander the great is the title of the recording that jamie made with around that music and it's uh, like a theocratic theoretical method of planetary zodiacal and aspectual correspondences set into music and i find it fascinating i like the harmonium sound anyway and it's very particular and very meditative and i hope you like the idea of that uh, very different music again after the punk in the beginning and nico in the middle they have a bit of that harmonium planetary astrological music um, at the end well thanks for listening once again and thanks to jamie paul lamb for a wonderful interview very interesting and um Good luck for him for all the future ventures. There are things to come, I'm sure. Well, there are things to come also here on this podcast. Uh, We have a new episode coming up next week again, next week, Sunday, October 17. And as I said in the beginning, next week, it will be our 100th episode. Quite amazing. Who would have guessed I would ever arrive there? Four and a half years it took us to be here. And I am very happy to say that the podcast is thriving as never before. Thanks to you, the listeners. So do all come back next week. Bring your friends and listen to episode number 100, where my guest will be Philip Cargom, who for 32 years was the chosen chief they call it of the order of bards druids and ovates which from 12 members when he took over has become a worldwide organization of i believe 20-ish thousand or even more members and he's such a charming man such a nice man to talk to you're gonna love it Philip Cargom will be my guest on episode number 100, which will be episode 8 of season 7 as well. And well, for the time being, I hope you are going to have a good week. Look forward to have you back next week. And I tell you, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.